Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Oh, it's that time of year, folks. The cherry blossoms have bloomed and you know what's on our mind. No, not spring, not baseball, not March Madness. It's the Green Book. Yes, the administration's set of tax proposals were released this week. And of course, we're going to talk about them today. I'm joined by our friends, Jenna Cunha and Tom Stout, as we discuss the FY 2023 Green Book to find out what's notable, what's possible, and what's next. So, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Just in case everybody's not following along, will you remind us what exactly is the Green Book? Well, it is often best to start with the basics. It's the responsibility of Congress to raise revenue and appropriate funds for programs. What happens every year is the the administration, usually in February, makes a set of recommendations to Congress for both expenditures and revenues. And that was done last week. And what they usually include with regard to revenues is is sort of a shorthand description of some of the revenue-raising proposals that they have, the recommendations to Congress. The Green Book, which usually follows the same day, is Treasury's somewhat more elaborate description of the revenue, the the tax provisions, the the recommendations that the administration is making, usually not more than two or three pages. So it's not greatly elaborate, but uh, considerably more elaborate than, than OMB describes the provisions in the recommendations it sent to Congress. So it's the administration providing us, and probably mostly for the tax professionals of the world, a greater description of what it thinks would be improvements upon the tax system. And it includes not just revenue raising provisions, but also spending provisions. And as you say, Tom, it's written in a pretty easy, plain English fashion where they explain current law, the reason why they want to change current law, and then specifically what they're, well, not that specifically, what they're looking to do. So that's what we've got. And it's the administration's green book for fiscal year 2023. Of course, the federal fiscal year begins on October 1. Got it. Okay. So, Jen, now that Tom has reminded us, helpfully, what the Green Book does, how seriously, then, should we take these Green Book proposals? Look, you worked at the Ways and Means Committee. You worked at the Senate Finance Committee. You've seen a lot of these Green Books come and go. How seriously do you think they're taken on the Hill, and how often are they actually acted on? You know, that's a really great question because they're legislative proposals, but this is not legislation, right? There's no bill text. This isn't something that congressional policymakers can pick up and plug into a bill per se, right? These are, it's more of an ideas book. And I would say, you know, it's important to take them seriously, but take them for what they are, which is legislative proposals, like any legislative proposal. Obviously, it's it's the administration's position, but... Congress will do what Congress's will. And we don't know whether or not there is political backing for a lot of these proposals, right? This is their kind of opening offer in the tax policy space. So it's a important, yes. Is it utilized? I can tell you that during the TCJA, I went through many years, through many, many green books, hunting for dollars. So there are a lot of revenue raises that are in here. Maybe this year there's no opportunity for a bill that includes any of them, but I promise you, once these things are out there, these are just ideas on ways to raise revenue, and um, they could be picked up by any staffer, committee of jurisdiction, you know, Ways and Means needs the money. They're going to go through these green books for ideas, and there are a lot of ideas in here on how to raise revenue. 
That's a great observation. It's a reminder that these things never truly go away. And that even if they are not necessarily possible this year, we can talk about whether or not they are, they will live on for some future staffer on the Hill to potentially come back to and identify as a good idea. All right, so Tom, back to you then. So of the proposals that you've seen, and I know you've had a chance to look at it, the Green Book, of the various ones, are there any we should take more seriously or urgently than potentially others? What do you think? Yeah, this is an unusual Green Book. I think it's a unique Green Book. The administration issued one last year with a whole set of tax proposals in it. And Congress has been considering that ever since. We now have a House-passed bill that adopted some of those proposals, modified some others. What this budget and Green Book do is take that as a given. Uh, That's included in their baseline, sort of assumed as if passed, and then added back things that were rejected in the House legislation because they didn't like it or they didn't think it was going to pass the Senate. As a result, you know, what we've got in this Green Book, this new one, is a repeat of some of those rejected provisions, but then also a a dozen or so new ones. And I think it pays to maybe pay a little more attention to the ones that are new. Uh, Things like a minimum tax on the ultra-wealthy, that's something that's new. There's a partnership basis shifting provision. And then maybe most importantly of all, uh, a modification of a provision that was adopted in the House passed bill for international tax, a modification that was recommended last year for the base erosion and abuse tax, which the administration is now proposing be replaced by something that comes a lot closer to you know, what was agreed to in the OECD. It's an, an under tax payment rule with a, a domestic top-up tax. I think those are among the things that you you probably want to pay more attention to. I think that's right. I think the undertaxed profits rule, the UTPR, is one that we should watch very closely for a bunch of reasons. Um, One, as you say, Tom, it gets us closer to where the OECD is on this question. I think it's, again, a reminder of how important those negotiations are to the administration as well. Once again, signaling the Congress, you know, sort of, Forget what we said last year and forget what you did earlier this year. This is what we should now do. And so I think it is one of the ones that if we do get a bill this year, and if it does have an international tax title, there's going to be a strong, strong push, I would imagine, to get that in there. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So, Jen, if Tom is is correct, that Congress might be inclined to act on this UTPR idea. He also mentioned that they also say in the Green Book they would like to incorporate with that as many other jurisdictions are considering in addition to adopting UTPR, this domestic top-up tax concept. It's sort of a minimum tax, right, to bring companies up to a certain level of tax. But recall, of course, everybody, we already had a domestic-based minimum tax in the House-passed version of Build Back Better, which, as Tom said correctly, is incorporated into the baseline of this bill. So I think that means uh, we they're proposing two separate minimum taxes, the book-based minimum tax, and this new domestic top-up tax. Does that sound, A, does that sound right to you, Jen? And (laughs) does it make sense, do you think, for to have both of those minimum taxes simultaneously? I think that the description is an accurate description of where the Green Book is, having the Build Back Better Act as the baseline. So that includes that domestic minimum tax that, you know, we all saw that Congress has been hearing a lot about over the last few months since it was first introduced to the tax world. 
um, last fall, but does it actually make sense to have it? I mean, that's something that is not addressed, how those would be synchronized, the domestic minimum tax that was in the Build Back Better Act with this new domestic minimum top-up tax, um, which according to the Green Book, very slim on details, but it just simply says, would protect U.S. revenues from the imposition of a UTPR by other countries. So that's really the extent to which there is any detail on here. However, you know, we'll see, right? They Maybe they serve different functions. I know, Tom, we've talked about this. Maybe the domestic min tax is really kind of reserved for domestic enterprises. This could be something that is reserved for multinational enterprises. It's unclear how they would synchronize it. But what I can say is that, wow, this is a green book of minimum taxes, right? Of flush with minimum taxes. We have that minimum tax on high net worth individuals. We have this new min tax. The code already has a number of min tax individual. We have the beat. It does propose a repeal of the beat. So it's replacing one min tax for another. But, you know, the guilty is also a minimum tax. So flush with minimum taxes. And this would just add another layer of minimum taxes on top of what currently exists. Yeah, it's it's complicated, right? Because if both of these taxes is, existed simultaneously, now remember, they have different thresholds, I think. The book minimum tax applies, I think, at $2 billion in net income. I think the domestic top-up taxes would kick in at a lower number. Um, so there's not perfect overlap between the two. But you have to ask yourself, if you're a taxpayer, which minimum tax do you pay first to determine whether or not you've met the minimum tax threshold? I, I happen to believe, and I think you were sort of hinting at this, Jen, is maybe we're reading too much into this, right? As a, a shorthand, they said, let's assume Build Back Better is enacted, and now let's do this other stuff. I think as a practical matter, if this ever came to pass, Congress would say, look, pick a min tax. We're not going to do both. And that may be, in reality, how it ultimately would go. Um, it's hard for me to see them maintaining both. All right. Well, Tom, Jen mentioned the uh, multitude of min taxes we've got going on here. Let's come back to one of the ones that she talked about and you also mentioned is this minimum tax on wealthy taxpayers. Boy, did this get a lot of press over the last week. Tell us what this is and how it might work. Yeah, there's, there's been a lot of talk as the Build Back Better agenda has been working its way through Congress about taxation of the wealthy. Various wealth taxes have been proposed and you know, this is just the this is the latest variation. And one of the problems with wealth taxes is, is there are constitutional issues with taxing wealth and whether it has to be apportioned. So what they've tried to do is, I think, try to take what looks a lot like a wealth tax and turn it into something they can argue is an income tax, which is permitted under the Constitution. And they do that by essentially imposing a 20 percent minimum tax on income of uh, people who have a net worth of more than $100 million, an income that includes uh, accretions to, to wealth, basically uh, unrealized capital gains. So it's a way to get at the taxation of, you know, a lot of the ultra wealthy, uh, you know, you know who they are, you know, who have an interest to, in a large company that they're never actually taxed on because they've got appreciated stock uh, that they don't have to sell, that they can pledge for loans and live on the loans and potentially get a step up in basis at death. But, it, you know, it, I think there's a, still a serious question about whether that that those unrealized gains uh, are income for purposes of the Constitution. You know, that's one of the things they'd have to address. All that being said, you know, this is a 
a radical concept. It's not something you know we've done before. There've been mark-to-market proposals for liquid assets and things, but we've never actually gone there. And it would be complex because obviously the value of property goes up and down. So what do you do? You know, when you've been taxed on the value of in one year and then the value decreases in another year, how do you account for the losses? It's a complex enterprise that you know we really haven't seen fully baked yet, and it's certainly not fully baked in the Green Book proposal. Well, complicated is right. And as you said, we've seen these proposed taxes on unrealized gains before. Chairman Wyden, of course, has had proposals there. As everybody knows, it's very, very complex to how to calculate those, what you do about fluctuations in value. And, you know, we should not ignore, as you said, the constitutional issue here. Yes, they're calling it an income tax, but I can see a horse and call it a zebra. That does not make it a zebra. So, you know, we'll leave it to the constitutional scholars and the courts to sort it out if it ever comes to pass. But it is complicated. And it's in my personal view, this is an interesting proposal, one that probably has a long, long runway for members of Congress to study, observe, consider, tinker with before it would ever potentially get legs. And, you know, the runway this year is not a long one. So I don't think we're going to be looking at having this one in play this year. It is horse-like, but it's not clear it's got four legs yet. (laughs) Right, right. There you go. Okay, so Jen, you know, I talked a little bit about, you know, the amount of time we have this year. So coming back to when you're a Hill staffer and, you know, you said sometimes you looked at these proposals, but do you think this moves the needle on what Congress has to do this year? You know, we're recording this on March 30th. We've got an election in November. We have August recess beginning around August 1st. What do you think? Does this Green Book move the needle on any of those negotiations that could happen if this tax reconciliation bill gets revived here over the course of the late spring and summer? Does this move the needle in any way? I don't think it does. I mean, usually the way that the Hill uses these is to fill in their priorities. If you're trying to fill some gaps, then you can go to the Green Book, see if there's anything that you can pluck from the Green Book to fill some of those holes. It certainly does not set the congressional agenda. I don't think it really does move the needle. I mean, for a very long time, the White House has been pretty consistent. The administration has been consistent with respect to their tax proposals. We know that these are largely unchanged. I mean, there are some new provisions, as Tom mentioned, but the position hasn't changed drastically since last year. However, the congressional position with respect to those positions, uh, that that has been altered, right? The trajectory of the Build Back Better Act has significantly changed. So I don't think that this moves the needle. I think that at best, it serves as one of these documents that you can utilize to say, you know what, why don't we throw in a couple of the administration's new proposals in this bill, maybe in years further down the line. I would agree with that. I, I think it, it serves a couple of broader political purposes. One is that you know if some of these provisions are politically popular in some areas, so it's nice to have them out there as proposals that candidates can run on in November. And also, the Build Back Better plan is still out there uh, under negotiation. It's obviously going to be carved back considerably from, from where it started. One way to persuade members who are not happy about some of the carvebacks is to show them that there's going to be another bill sometime in the future and you know here's what's going to be in it so you outline those things in, in the budget 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, I, I, your point was well taken on the international provisions in particular, that that's something that can definitely get in play if, you know, the UTPR proposal, if we got a bill this year. But, you know, Jen, to your point, you're right. In the version of Build Back Better that passed the House, they raised something like $2.3 trillion in revenue. I think it's safe to say that if a bill goes this year, it's not going to be that big. It's going to be smaller. And that means they're not short on revenue. Right. That's not what the problem is. They're short on votes is what their problem has been, but they're not short on revenue. So it's not like they're diving into the green book to say, where are some other ways we can raise revenue in, in a world where they probably have more than they already need. So that's a, a fair point as to how this could play out over the course of the spring or into the summer if they get Build Back Better moving again. OK, well, thank you, Jen and Tom. That's all we have time for today. In closing, let's come back to something we mentioned briefly at various points in today's discussion, and that's that this year's Green Book starts out by saying that it assumes that Build Back Better, as approved by the House, has already been enacted. In other words, these proposals build upon a law that has not yet been enacted. Now, if that strikes you as a little bit odd, let's discuss it for a second, because really, it's a pretty ingenious way out of a sticky situation for Treasury. So first, let's rewind. Last year's Green Book was highly anticipated maybe the most highly anticipated Green Book of all time. Why? Well, because, of course, it was President Biden's first budget and our first really good look at the Biden tax plan. But also because last year's Green Book was being dropped right into the middle of a congressional negotiation on a major tax bill, a bill that would eventually, of course, become the Build Back Better Act. So now let's flash forward to 2022 and the fiscal year 2023 Green Book that we got this week. Treasury had a very difficult decision to make here. Do they just reissue last year's Green Book, reaffirming all the proposals they released last year? But that approach would ignore the reality of all the Capitol Hill and all the OECD negotiations of the last year. In fact, it would also run the risk of ruffling feathers on Capitol Hill as Democratic leaders are still trying to hold together the delicate negotiations on a tax bill for later this year. So maybe instead they do something else. What if they just modified last year's proposals to look more like the Build Back Better Act as it stalled out last December? But that has problems as well. That would have conceded a number of policy priorities for the administration. And I imagine that approach was less than ideal for a bunch of reasons. So then what are you left with? Well, you then perhaps do just as Treasury did. You assume that the Build Back Better Act has been enacted, and then you propose additional changes to the tax system to make it better. And that approach that Treasury took mostly works as a way to present the administration's ideas on taxes. Yes, it's a little bit odd to propose repealing the BEAT and implementing the UTPR when the BEAT changes they propose to repeal haven't even happened yet. Yes, it's clunky to propose a new minimum tax without repealing the book minimum tax, as we discussed. And by the way, a book minimum tax that hasn't yet been enacted either. But here's one last interesting observation, interesting to me anyway. Yes, Treasury in the Green Book assumes that the Build Back Better Act has been enacted. But look closely at the very first page, right after the table of contents, and here's what it says, quote, the revenue proposals are estimated relative to a baseline that incorporates all of the revenue provisions of Title VIII of H.R. 5376 as passed by the House of Representatives on November 19, 2021, except 
Section 137601, unquote. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> you no doubt are asking, what is Section 137601? Well, it's the House proposal to increase the cap on SALT deductions. So then why does the administration leave that one, that one particular provision out? Does the administration not support increasing the SALT cap? Well, we don't know, but that's not exactly a far-fetched idea, since they've hinted around at various times that they aren't exactly supportive of the idea, even if they're not exactly opposed. But other commenters have suggested, you know, that's just reading too much into it. Instead, it's just the administration trying to stay out of an ongoing negotiation in the Senate. You may recall that a number of senators have said that they'd like to modify the House SALT provision, mostly to make it less generous. Okay, that's a reasonable guess. But here's the thing. It's not like there aren't Senate negotiations also going on in dozens and dozens of other areas coming over from the House bill. So that theory feels a little wanting as well. So then what does all this mean? Well, I don't know. And honestly, your guess is as good as mine at this point. But I think this is true. For the no salt, no deal contingent in Congress, and it's a sizable one, this particular withholding of the salt provision in the Green Book, well, it may not be bad news, but it's pretty clearly not good news. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and your suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I do hope to see you soon.